if you have your bulletin, you'll see there that the text under my name is Hebrews uh, chapter 12. That was Will's text last week. I'm not cleaning up Will's text as if he didn't teach it appropriately. Um, I'm actually in 1 Corinthians 13, okay? 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have a copy of God's word, or you can turn it on if you have a phone, um, join me in 1 Corinthians 13, the first seven verses there. And what I'm going to strive to do over the next couple months is just kind of keep pointing you to, you know, what it's like to be a, a great church. Um, last week, or the last time I was here, we talked about being an enduring church, and we looked at Job chapter 1, and we talked about spiritual ruggedness. This week, I want to deal with what it means to be a loving church and give definition and, and color there. So 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7, it's one of our chief responsibilities as elders in any local church is to love the church and to also love the local church, this church. And so that's one of my responsibilities, to love you uh, through this interim process and uh, be here for you. And so we're in 1 Corinthians 13. Make your way there. And we're going to look at the first seven verses there. And we're going to unpack um, God's unconditional love and how it reflects on us as a local church. Let's read the text, and then we'll jump in immediately after. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, man, I can understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love, man, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but instead rejoices with the truth. And then he punctuates it. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 7, under the title and banner, A Loving Church. I want to begin by just stating a couple facts about biblical love, agape love that is addressed here in the text that I think it would be helpful for us to all kind of get a reference point. And the reason I want to do that is because I'm parachuting into the text, right? We've not been in a series like we normally would be going through a book or a, a topic. So we're kind of parachuting into these individual topics. And so let's set it up a little bit. Let's reorient ourselves this morning as we think about the concept of biblical love. First, love is defining. God is love, right? God is love. First John 4, 8 says this, the one who does not love certainly does not know God, for God is love. So at the core of who God is, he is love. Love originated by God. It's his concept. Second, just fact about love is its action. You're going to see that it's a verb here in the text. Love is in action. And it's most clearly demonstrated, as Romans 5, 8 states, in God's love for us that he sent his only son to die on a cross for us, right? 
God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's actionable love. Third, love is God's best. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Next, love is our brand. John 13, 34 and 35. This shall all men know that you are my disciples when you have what? Love one for another. So it's, it's our identity. It's our unique differentiator. It's, it's our brand, so to speak, in modern language. It's who we are. We're at our best. As followers of Christ, when we are loving people unconditionally, because it's who God is, right? Love is costly. You know that. He gave his own son, his one and only son. So when love is present in the context of a local church, it's beautiful. It's staggering. When it's absent, it's ugly. I mean, it's really, really ugly, right? Because it's who God is. We're not reflecting who God is when we're not loving people. Furthermore, love covers. As you know from 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't cover all sin. That's why there is church discipline. There are occasions like next week where we'll have to do some hard things and make some hard decisions. But by and large, 99.5% You're covering all the time. You're covering in your marriage. You're covering with your children. You're covering in the community. You're covering at your work. You're covering here in the local church. Love, by nature, will cover, doesn't cover all sin. Certain sins rise to an occasion where we have biblical descriptors and and commands that we must follow. But love covers sin. And last fact, just to orient ourselves about biblical love, love conquers Love conquers. Love in particular conquers enemies, right? In Matthew, Jesus said, we're to love our enemies. We're not to hate them. We're to love our enemies. So when you take all of these, just like the theology of agape love, these are just the different principles, the different pieces or vistas as you turn love and you see all these unique features and how it's played out in the gospels and played out in the epistles and how it's played out in Christ I mean, love's a big deal, and you're going to see that especially this morning in 1 Corinthians 13, which is a classic uh, text. Now, let's jump in. Let's move in closer to 1 Corinthians 13. Let me give you some surrounding pieces of context that I think will help you because there's a lot of misunderstanding when you approach this particular text. First off, you're dealing with the Corinthian church. So the Corinthian church was great at accuracy, probably got a D in devotion. They weren't doing really well. They had a lot of conflict. There were a lot of issues um, that the Apostle Paul was writing to. They had gotten sideways. And it, one of the issues they got sideways was this issue of love. They really struggled with this issue of love. And you see real early, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7 states, they had all the gifts I mean, they were loaded. They were a very talented church. They had great capacity as a church. So they prized certain gifts and certain talents, but they didn't do it in the spirit of love. So they were competent, but they lacked compassion. They lacked love, and so they became self-absorbed. They got cold. So they went through all the emotions. They were very efficient. 
I mean, they were, they were fantastic. As you look at what they did, Paul says, you have all the gifts, but you're missing something. Similar to Revelation 2, 1 to 7 in the church of Ephesus, where you read all the compliments that Jesus gives about the church of Ephesus. And then he says, I've got this, this one thing against you. What? You left your first love. So this is kind of what you're feeling when you're marching through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, when I first encountered this text, I got married in 1992, and there was a rage in 1992 for the ladies, and that was cross-stitch. I think it's gone now, but it was in 1992, if you're old enough to know, everybody was cross-stitching. This was the first verse my new wife cross-stitched, was 1 Corinthians 13. And the way I, way I associated it was a wedding text. I associate it like beautiful prose and beautiful poetry. Some of you may have it on your wall somewhere. What you might not grasp here is that this is actually a rebuke. This is not a compliment, what he's about to do. He's, he's actually kind of, you know, it has two sides to it in this text. One, it's a hammer in verses 1 to 4. And then it's a mirror so you have a hammer and a mirror. But most of us see this, and it's red in weddings, and the bride's beautiful, and the husbands look okay. And, you know, everybody kind of like, everybody reads this, and, and, and it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying you, its original intent was to rebuke the Corinthian church that they had crushed it with the spiritual gifts, but failed at, at love. So they had an A in accuracy or competency, and they got a D in devotion in how they cared for and loved one another. So we approach this particular passage. So they had big talent and cold hearts. And so you see, when we leave chapter 12, verse 31, you see the hinge in the text. And I want to point out to you, because he's just in chapter 12, listed all the spiritual gifts. They prized those. They loved those. But look what he says in verse 31 of chapter 12. But earnestly desire the greater gifts or the higher gifts. But I'm going to show you a better way. So he's complimenting them. He's saying, listen, you need to pursue your giftedness. You're called. You're gifted. You're you're giving spiritual gifts for the sake of the body. You need to be deploying your spiritual gift. But let me tell you that your spiritual gift has to be dominated in a more excellent way, and that's by love. And then he says, this is what I mean by that. So chapter 13, 1 to 7, is what he means by, let me show you a better way. Here is the better way. It's demonstrating agape love. It's using your gifts in the context of biblical love, in the context of building a healthy local church. That's what is the text emphasis. That's what's going on. And they were self-absorbed. They were loving their gifts. They were on display. As you're going to see, he uses a lot of hyperbole to kind of shock them out of their, out of their, their current situation. So there are two things I want to point out in this text for you this morning. First... I want you to see that love is superior, superior to all your talents, all your abilities, all your intellect. Love is superior in the local church. That's why we're talking about that this morning. And second, love is action. Love is action. So just two, te- two things, one to four, love is superior, five to seven, love is action. Now, what he does, let's get into the text. What he does here is very unique. 
he uses a lot of hyperbole. You can see the hyperbole is indicated by the little phrase repeated if. If you had this gift, if you were doing these things, if you were doing this. So he creates these these hyperbolic statements about the gifts that he knew they prized. Remember, he knows this church. He's combating their lack of love, and he knows what they value. And he picks the top five that they valued, and he says, if you could do them perfectly, then this would be the following point. And he's making a singular point. If you are highly gifted, but you lack love, that's no bueno. That's no good. It's not, it's not the purpose. It's not the raison d'etre of, of, of spiritual gifts. It's not why you exist. Superiority to your giftedness is your ability to love one another in the context of the local church. So that little phrase, if, is best translated, just suppose for a minute. Let's just let our imagination run a little bit. And he gives five examples, five hyperbolic statements Let me give you five metaphors, five examples of something they highly prized, but they also lacked love and how it distorts. You see, love is supposed to animate, right? It's like the gospel. It animates all of life. Love is supposed to animate. And in this case, it's distracting. It's dulling their ability to deploy their spiritual gifts. So let's look at the five real quick. First, suppose you had the most eloquent gift of tongues. Let's just suppose you had the most elegant gift of tongues. Tongues is the word glossolalia. It's the issue at hand. It's the big issue here in 1 Corinthians 12 and chapter 13 and even chapter 14. Three chapters are kind of dedicated to this one spiritual gift. The gift of glossolalia or tongues is the gift of speech. It's the ability to speak known languages and you've not previously known or studied the language. So you're basically interpreting so that people like in Acts 2 who visit the community from other communities and don't speak the English language could actually hear your sermon and the application in their own language. And he said, suppose you were the most eloquent speaker like the angels. If I speak the tongues of men or of even angels. What's interesting, the the leaders In Acts 20, Luke 6, all believe angels spoke Hebrew. It wasn't an unknown language. It was Hebrew is what they actually identified in Acts 26, 14. But here he's saying it's really a synonym for eloquence. If I was the most eloquent tongue speaker. Now, I, you know, I have traveled often in Mexico in the last years of my life here and probably at least once a month. And I know agriculture Spanish. You know, that's about it. But if you run up to me on the street, it's not going to be eloquent. You know, I know food, uh, food Spanish, enough to order a meal, and a little bit of ag Spanish. After that, I don't really know Spanish. I'm not eloquent. I'm not what we would say today is fluent. What he's saying is, suppose you spoke the tongues of men or of like angel, angelic, like it was so eloquent. It was so, it was so fluent that you could converse in another language right? That, that would be fantastic. He says, if you can do that, but you don't have love, he says, you're like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. What is he talking about? If you don't have love, then you're like these instruments. Well, notice the instruments. They're both single tone instruments. In orchestration, in a band, they're fantastic. 
take them out on their own and someone's just clanging a cymbal, parents know this, you'd drive you bonkers. You never buy your kids cymbals, all right? You'd just be crazy. It'd be a bad move. It's first child move kind of stuff. You don't do that stuff, right? So you're like a noisy, irritating kid playing the cymbals and clashing and making noise. Well, first off, it's most important that spiritual gifts are given to the body. Why? For you? No. Fundamentally, they're given for the body. They're not for you. So even the tongues, the speaking of languages is so that you could interpret for people. And if you did that with eloquence, that'd be fantastic. But if it's with eloquence without love, that's that's nothing more than an irritation in the body. I would say it like this, like a barking dog. If your neighbor chooses to have a dog and it barks all night long, there's nothing more irritating than a barking dog. You're an incessant barking dog to the body of Christ when you are promoting your spiritual gift but doing it without love. That's a dangerous thing, Paul says, and that's exactly what was going on there in Corinth. And he's saying, hey, in orchestration, it's beautiful. When it's functioning in the body properly, it's wonderful that you would be able to interpret like that. And you're the best at it. You're fluent at it. But when you do it and you don't love people, man, it and he's going after things that they were prizing. They were like, this is the best gift to have in the, in the body of Christ. They would itemize these, this. He says, you're nothing but loud and obnoxious without love. But notice what he does also in the text. I want your eyes on it. He personifies it. He doesn't pin it on them. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I Paul am a noisy gong. He doesn't hammer them. He uses himself illustratively. He says, hey, I'm the illustration. If I do this, I'm telling you, I'm the apostle Paul. Like, if I do this, then I'm out of line, right? I'm out of step with the spirit. I would be like a hollow reverberation. I myself would be just a gong or a clanging cymbal. So gifts can be deployed, we know this, with sincerity and faithfulness, and they also can be deployed with harshness and ugliness and lack of love. And so Apostle Paul says, that's just one example. Let me give you a second one. What if I knew it all? Not only what if I could speak known languages fluently, beautifully, eloquently, but second, he says, let me give you another hyper." Hyperbolic statement. What if I knew it all? He says, and if I had prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains. Like, what if I know it all? I have the mind of Christ. I know all of God's secrets. You come up to me at church and say, hey, what's going on in my life? What's, what happened to Mike? I just say, here's what happened. This is what the Lord was doing in his life. You just know everything. Like, you're a walking biblical encyclopedia. You're a theological machine. You dotted your I's. You crossed your T's. You're theologically sound. Like, you, you're accurate. You're precise. But if you don't have love, if you have the gift of prophecy, but you don't have love, what does he say? You know, it, you don't, you're nothing. He says, I am nothing. Like, it, it doesn't amount to everything. You're a walking Bible. Well, we know from 1 Corinthians earlier, chapter 8, verse 1, he says, knowledge actually puffs up. Knowledge can be dangerous. 
Now, we want you to understand. We want you to study your Bible. We want you to know your Bible. But that's so that it will heighten your devotion in your intimacy with Christ, in your relationship with Christ, not to make you proud, right? So that's what he's trying to say. And he says the net result is you can crush it. You can have discernment. You can have to get the prophecy. You can preach the lights out. You could do all that. But he says, if I don't have that, he again personifies it. He says, I am nothing. Second illustration. Third metaphor. What if I could do anything? So not only do I know everything, I can speak with eloquence on my feet. But what if I could do anything? This is my personal favorite. There it is. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, that's, that's my favorite. Like, wouldn't you like to just, it wouldn't be kind of cool to say, okay, there's Mount Shasta. I'm going to make it Mont Blanc. There's Rainier, and I'm going to make it Mount Whitney. You're just like moving, coming into Apple Valley, all the hills. You're just moving topography around. Like, that's a pretty cool spiritual gift, actually. I mean, you have that kind of demonstrative faith to be able to move mountains. Again, it's, it's not actual. He's, he's doing it with hyperbole, right? If you had that kind of faith, is that you could speak and actually move mountains around. Like, that's like a cool spiritual gift. Obviously, you're not agreeing with me, but I think it's a pretty cool spiritual gift. So the ability to move mountains, that's pretty awesome, pretty supernatural. Let's, let's just call it that. You can do anything. So he says, if you're the best speaker, the best Bible scholar, and you have the best faith of any congregation, but you don't have love, zero. Goose egg. But he goes on. What if I put it all on the line? Look at it. And if I, I am nothing, if I give away all that I have, oh, philanthropy, you are the top philanthropist in Southern Oregon. I mean, you've made a ton, you've very wealthy, high net worth family, but you say, you know what? We're just going to give it all away. We're going to give it to Jesus. You're going to give it all away. Every, I mean, we're going to live, it's almost like a poverty ethic. We're going to kind of live on very bare bones, just enough to feed the family. So you're the best giver. You're a philanthropist. He says, you don't have love? Giving all your possessions to the poor. Yeah, you don't have love? Doesn't matter. You see? That's why love is superior. Love is a better way. And then finally, he goes for the ultimate Look at it. If I give my body to be burned, what is that? Martyrdom. That's the ultimate sacrifice, right? Giving yourself away into the local church through teaching or using your, your gift of languages or whatever that is, those are, those are cool. But now you've actually, in martyrdom, given up your body for the sake of everyone else. You put it all in and you give your body up to be burned. You're going, Wow. That's fantastic. Like, that's super leadership. Like, that's, that's off the charts. That's extreme devotion, right? I mean, it's beyond humanitarian, right? You've given up. It's, it's the climax of all giving to give your body to be burned. Look what he says. But I don't have love. You gain nothing. Are you getting the feeling like I'm getting as we march through this text that love's a pretty big deal with God. So it doesn't matter how omni-capable you are, 
how well you can sing, how well you can lead, how well you can play, how well you can farm, how well you can do whatever you do. And I know you do it well. I mean, you're good at, you guys are good at what you do, right? It doesn't matter if it's not anchored and demonstratively coming from love. If you don't have love, it profits us nothing as a church. That's why it's our identity. That's why it's our brand. When people walk in here, they see us in the community, this shall all men know that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ because we love people. We even love our enemies. That's how crazy our love is. That's biblical love. That's God kind of love, right? Let's do a little math. Let's pause. God's math is quite different from our math. So what does he say? Five minus one is what? Yeah, in our math, it's zero. Five minus one is four. In our math, in God's math here in 1 Corinthians 13, five minus one is zero. You could be crushing it, just like the church at Ephesus. I mean, I'm telling you, you would have joined the church of Ephesus. They were the few, the proud, the Ephesians. I mean, they were, he tells them, just like eight things they're doing. They're crushing it. I would join the church of Ephesus. There would be no question. He says, oh, but you left your first love. You've gotten cold, right? You're, you're highly capable, but you're cold. You've got to reverse that trend, Paul says. You can't do that. And the Corinthian church struggled with pride and struggled with their arrogance, as he's about to point out. And so this is a hammer that if you are really good at what you do, but you lack love, you need to fix that. You need to repent of that. You need to turn to Christ and learn about the love of God and how it changes. So five minus one in God's economy is zero, right? Five extreme examples minus one. You end up offending others. You become nothing. You bring no value value to the body. This is a hard lesson. But the point is this. Look up. Love is superior. He said, I'll show you a better way. Here's the better way. And he takes their own illustrations and he just runs them out with hyperbole to make a point. That's what hyperbole is for. Exaggerating it extreme to hammer the point of the superiority of love. And so there's a hammer in this text. Second, there's a mirror in the text. There's a mirror in the text. Check it out. So verses four through seven is a mirror. This is what love looks like. So he says love superior. The obvious question from you and from me should be then, What does it look like? What does it look like in my marriage? What does it look like at work? What does it look like in the body? What does it look like on the elder board? What does it look like? Well, four to seven is a picture. It's a mirror for us to pause and to look into that mirror. It's like love in street clothes. Real, I mean, practical, right? Love in street clothes. These are the essential ingredients. Now, Are these the only? No. Anytime you see a list in Scripture as an interpretive principle, it's usually a sampling of what it could be. It's not everything. So this is like love with training wheels. Let's say it like that. This is love with training wheels that's cross-stitched on your wall like it's cross-stitched on my world, my wall, right? And there are 15 descriptors to examine our lives with. And the point of this is love is action, 
These are not nouns. These are present tense verbs. Love does this and continues to do this. Love does this and it continues to do this. This is what love looks like all the time. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why it's so superior, right? They're present tense. And so he says, this is what love looks like. This is what love does. This is what love does not do, right? Love's a doer. We all know the little phrase. We've heard it. Talk's cheap. Well, you can say you love people all day long, but if you don't show it and you don't avoid certain things, Jesus says you're lying. You're not telling the truth. You don't know the love of God, the deep, deep, remember that hymn? The deep, deep love of God that transforms our lives. Mm. Finally, just as the portico into this mirror, I want you to know that you could substitute Jesus for any one of these. Let's do it. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy. Jesus doesn't brag. He's not arrogant. Jesus isn't rude. And you should do the same as it becomes a mirror for you. So I can put my name. Is Dan patient? Is Dan kind? Is Dan envious? Is Dan boastful? So what I want you to do for homework is to take the list Double click on it and put your name in there. Just begin to ask yourself. And there's going to be things you're good at and things you're not so good at. That's the hope of the gospel. You're not going to do it like Jesus because you're not Jesus. <laughs> but you're not perfect. You're imperfect. But you're supposed to live an exemplary life. So let's just be fair. Let's keep the standard nice and high. Let's not lower it down to our standard. Let's keep it nice and high and just ask ourselves the question. If you're on a date night, right, guys, you're still dating your wives, still doing it 32 years later. So you're on date night, then take the list with you. Say, hey, uh, let's just talk about love isn't rude. Do you see any rudeness in me? Yeah, I see how you go through Krant's Pass and yell at that guy or whatever, you know, on the road. Yeah, you kind of like, you got a little punk to you that hadn't been driven out. You know, you're still not that, you know what I'm saying? Like, just work through the list is all I'm commending to you. And, and just get, get working on it. So let me walk through the list real quick. And then what I'm going to do is... Um, I'm just going to give you a little bit of color, okay? I'm going to try to modernize it a little bit and use some of our own language to kind of add color to the Apostle Paul's list. Again, keep in mind, this is not exhaustive. This is love and training wheels. So if you're struggling with the training wheels, you may dig a little deeper, right? You got a little more homework than some of us, some other people, okay? So first, look at what he says. Love is patient. What does he mean by patient? It means short-fused. It means that you and I take a long time to arrive at anger. It doesn't say we never get angry. It just says, by and large, our disposition is not to get ang- angry. It's not to rage is kind of the word, right? We're slow to be offended. Love has this long fuse. Why? Because love, life is so messy. You live in a Genesis 3 world... Your wife, I mean, I could barely deal with my own sin. Then I got married. Now I doubled my sin. Then I had two kids. I quadrupled my sin as the patriarch in the family. It's like, it's messy. You know what I'm saying? Like you're dealing, your whole house is riddled, you know? And you can barely get through yourself, right? It's part of the deal. So he's just reminding us it's patient. Guys in particular, we struggle with this. We're short-fused sometimes, right? This is a particularly besetting sin is... The Puritans would call it for for men in general. 
That's why he told Peter. Peter said, remember what Peter said? Hey, 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 how often do I forgive him? Seven times a day? How often do I forgive my spouse? Seven times? He goes, no, 70 times seven. That's 490 times in a day. When's the last time you offended your wife? 490 times in a day, right? Like, that's, he's saying it doesn't end, right? It's never ending. You're just constantly working at being patient. Not saying you're doing it perfectly. That's why we have the gospel, right? So love is patient. Enough said. Second, love is kind. What does he mean by that? It's benevolent. It's a, it's a readiness to do good. Like this, to, you just list. If you see someone broken down, you just like, I just need to help that person. I need to help them. If I see them pulled over, you know, um, and, and I see a, a lady struggling or whatever, you just love is kind. You're, you're, you're not harsh, right? It was said of Thomas Cramner, to do him any wrong was to beget a kindness from him. If you did anything to Thomas Cramner, he would just return kindness to you. That's strong, isn't it? It's hard to do, but that's the biblical expectation. Love is kind. Third, love is not envious or jealous is the word or envy here. It's not jealous. There's some things love does not do. There's a lot of things love does. There's some things it doesn't do. It doesn't burn with envy, right? It doesn't begrudge when other people win and have successes in business or get to use the, uh, a different kind of spiritual gift or get promoted in work. You don't go, Shh. Bill, he's just, oh, I'm telling you what. No, it's like, man, Bill got a raise. We get 10% of that. That's awesome, right? No, I'm just kidding. You can't do that. Love... It, it doesn't, um, it, 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 it doesn't, uh, it doesn't get jealous. It, jealousy, the reason why this is important, because it's a real community killer, right? That's what envy and jealousy does. If you're trying to create healthy community and a family atmosphere, well, jealousy in that just gums everything up. It messes everything up. Number four, love does not boast or brag Love doesn't boast about itself. It's not preoccupied with itself. As Philippians 2, 3 says, it esteems others better than itself. Love doesn't try to be the best. It doesn't try to outdo every story. It doesn't brag. One author put it like this. Boasting is an advertisement for spiritual poverty. When you see someone doing it, you kind of like, you almost pity them. Number five, love is not arrogant, not overinflated. Love is humble. Love is not holier than thou. Love doesn't draw attention to itself. Love isn't concerned about your fame, but only the fame of Christ. Right? 3 John 9, 10, Diotrephes. He loved, you know, he loved to be esteemed. Number six, love does not act rude or unbecomingly as the NASB puts it. Love is well-behaved. It's tactful. It's not disgraceful. It's not shameful. It does the right thing the right way, right? Just the right thing the right way. It's almost predictable, you know. If you, if you poke the bear, the bear's going to respond in a kind, unharsh, patient manner, doing the right thing the right way. Love is not rude. It's just not. 
Number seven, love does not insist on its own way. Look at the text. Love does not insist on its own way. It doesn't seek its own. It's not selfish. It doesn't look out for number one. Love is generous, right? It's demonstrated. For God so loved the world, he gave. He wasn't looking out for his own, his one and only son. He gave his one and only son for our sin, the sinless one for the sinful many. Love Love gives until it hurts, and then it goes the extra mile. It doesn't just go the extra mile. So it doesn't insist on getting its own way, right? Number eight, love is not irritable or provoked. It means to boil. Love doesn't throw temper tantrums. Love is not thin-skinned. Love is not easily agitated. Love is in control, self-control. Number nine, love is not resentful. This is the math language. It's the, when we do and talk about marriage, we talk about love does not take into account a wrong suffered. You don't keep a ledger in your marriage. And wives, when you fight, you don't get historical. You don't go back 20 years and say, remember? And you've got them all itemized. No, love doesn't do that. That's not love. That's math. That's ledger, right? That's accounting principles in your marriage. Love, love doesn't add up offenses. I, there's no way. Love doesn't keep a ledger. Love forgives. It chooses to forgive. Love doesn't, um, you know, rehearse all of your sins. Love covers, right? Remember we said in the beginning, love covers a multitude of sin. Love drops the charges and refuses to get historical. That's what he means by not resentful. Number 10, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't find pleasure in sin. You see it there in verse 6a. Someone has rightly put, what a man rejoices in is a test of his character. It's a fair question. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't like get excited about sin. Then what does it do? Look at verse, end of verse 6. But it rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Love prizes integrity. Love's a a truth broker. Love delights in the truth. It brings a smile to your face when you hear truth and when you hear the word proclaimed and it's powerfully proclaimed and, 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 and done so in love. Love rejoices in truth. And then in staccato fashion, he goes after it. Look at how he piles it up. This is what it does. Love bears all things. And notice the repeated all here. No exceptions. Comprehensive. It bears all things. Notice it's unconditional. That's where we get agape. It's the unconditional love of God, right? It bears all things. It knows how to protect. It knows how to cover. It carries other people's burdens. I would say it like this. Love has huge shoulders. Love can carry a ton in this body. You love people and you, you carry it for them. You carry their burdens. As Galatians 6 says. And then he says, love believes all things. Ah, this is interesting. 
Because I think some of us probably believe there's a gift of suspicion in 1 Corinthians 12. Like you're just, what are the elders doing? What's the fat guy in the pulpit talking about? You know, you you got a gift of cynicalism or cynicism, a little suspicion going on. No, the Bible tells you to believe all things. Unless you find something other than that, you are not gifted at cynicism and gifted at criticism. You believe the best. When someone says something, I believe it to be true. Until, I'm, until I learn clearly otherwise, right? So love grants all possible allowances. Love looks out for the best. Love doesn't get suspicious and doesn't wonder what's going on, you know. Love is not gullible. I'm not asking you to be gullible. It's, it's basically the Apostle Paul saying it, it believes all things. It's discerning, but it's believing. When you say something to be true, it, it, you, you're, you're a Christian. that It should be true. Right? Number 14, love hopes all things. Hey, love's not, not defeated. It's not easily defeated. Love hates defeat. Love doesn't despair. It's full of hope. This message is supposed to be hopeful. Yes, it's a hammer, but it's also a mirror. That's the tool. It's, it's designed to help us think through this. But love is full of hope. It's forward thinking. It doesn't see the glass half empty. It sees it half full, right? Finally, love endures all things. Love is just, it's a tenacious little booger, right? Doesn't give up. Persistent, resolved, durable. 32 years of marriage. I know that's probably young for some of you, but... Man, you, you duke it out. You know, my wife and I actually have never had a fight. We've had lots of intense fellowship. <laughs> so we call it. Incredible resolve it takes to, to go the long haul. Love is durable. It's not easily deterred. I mean, it's just, it's there, right? Now, that's the list of 15 to tell you, and you see the verbs, it's all actionable. And you need to put yourself in there and, and just walk through those. And you can study them on your own when you go home. You can find a great commentary or Google it, First Corinthians 13, you know, 4, 7, and they'll give you a little more color than what I gave you this morning. But I want you to do that. Can you do that for me? Go home and look and say, hey, how am I doing in the love category? Ask your spouse if you have one. How am I doing? Ask a buddy. Ask a friend. How am I doing in this? If it's so superior, we ought to be asking ourselves and holding each other accountable to it, right? Here's another piece of hope. It's in here because it can be done. It's not an unattainable standard. He's not like flying over our heads and in, in just grinding us and gospel loading us up so we can't do it. It's actually in here because it's possible. Now, we do it imperfectly and irregularly, but we can do it. It's spirit-enabled love. And if you have the spirit of God residing in you, you are able to do this. And this is the gold standard for what agape love looks like. So, love is superior and love is action. Let me close with verse 13. Take a look at it. Look at how Paul closes the section. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, amazing. But the greatest of these is what? Right? 
It's a pretty big deal. It was a big deal to the Apostle Paul. It's a big deal to Applegate Community Church. It's a big deal to your elder team. We want you to love one another like the Bible instructs us to love. And here is the picture of it this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us this, these couple of pericopes, these paragraphs. And it's easy to pass over them, maybe even put them on the wall or cross-stitch them or tattoo them or whatever, but harder to live. So I ask you to give us grace and hope and this kind of love, this kind of love in the context of this local church, in our marriages, um, with our kids. Lord, help us to love like the scriptures command us to love. Enable us, give us the spirit's inducement, remind us, help us to do the hard work of homework and examine ourselves. Lord, please burn this text into our hearts. Even when we hear it at a wedding, we would be sobered by its statements. Lord, thank you for this morning and thank you for the study of God's word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.